purpose of today's show is to uh, to give some respect to the, the passing of John Lewis, who was a congressman and civil rights activist. And uh, John Lewis, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, um, you know, historically, since we've been doing the show Statutes and Stories on WSQF, we focused on early American history in the time of Washington and Jefferson and Hamilton. And we've done shows about, uh, you know, through the, civil, through the Civil War period in Lincoln. And I don't think we've done shows really since Lincoln. But because John Lewis is such an important figure in American history, such an important icon and towering influential personality, with what he accomplished, and it wasn't just him, because others uh, were working with him. I think it's important that uh, we do something we've never done before in Statutes of Stories, which is move to the 1960s, because I consider that very recent history. So we're going to do a show today on very recent history, meaning the Civil Rights Movement from 1960 to 1965, which were some of the most important years of the Civil Rights, Mem- uh, Civil Rights Movement. So let's start then with um, a little bit more background before we go to the 1960s. We're going to do the 1860s. So the Civil War ends in 1865, and three sets of amendments were passed, the Civil Rights Amendments, starting with the 13th Amendment, which is easy, that amendment outlaws slavery, the 14th Amendment that contains the Due Process and Equal Protection Clauses, and tries to make sure that people are treated fairly, and this would not happen for many, many years, but that was the intent of the 14th Amendment. And then you have the 15th Amendment, which gives the right to vote for those who were former slaves. So that's the 13, 14, and 15. But as we know, after Reconstruction ended in the 1870s, the South peeled back the, the, the advancements that were made, and those African Americans who were elected into Congress basically lost their seats, and Jim Crow descended. It took a, bit, a little bit of time, but Jim Crow descended, and the South uh, went back in time. And uh, you had a very bad situation where uh, Jim Crow was pervasive, and uh, it affected jobs, it affected uh, relations, and, um, you know, that's a- another horrible situation for uh, for the South when you had systematic and widespread segregation and discrimination in the South. So this brings us to 1960. <clears throat> and John Lewis, as a child, he grew up in Alabama. And he uh, had a little bit of a speech impediment. He was a child, 10 kids in the family, and uh, he would practice preaching to the chickens on the farm as a sharecropper. His family doesn't own the land, uh, but they have to pay a large portion of what they are able to generate in terms of crops to the owner of the land, so they're sharecroppers. So he listens to Martin Luther King, and uh, this is a radio that he hears about what's going on with the early stages of the Civil Rights Amendment and the Civil Rights Movement, and he writes a letter to Martin Luther King. And in the letter, he describes how uh, there was a college in Alabama, not too far from where he lived, but uh, although he had applied, he didn't hear anything back from the college. And there was no surprise because at the time, uh, institutions of higher learning, and it wasn't just colleges, but uh, public schools as well, uh, discriminated. And we can debate about what that legacy continues to be to a certain extent. But the point is that he is unable to even get a response from the nearby college that he wanted to go to in Troy, Alabama. So he writes a letter to Martin Luther King, and Martin Luther King invites him to come to, I don't remember if it was Mississippi at the time, but he's invited, may have been Atlanta, invites him to, a, he gets a bus ticket, and he goes out to visit Martin Luther King. And Martin Luther King uh, you know, asks him, would he be interested in bringing a lawsuit? And long story short, uh, John Lewis makes a decision because his parents, uh, were concerned because they understood what the risks were in rural Alabama, and uh, the decision was that no, he'll, he'll go to a uh, to a, um, a religious school and become a preacher. And they do not make the decision to bring a lawsuit. Uh, they didn't think at that point it was it was the, the right step to take. But he maintained a relationship with Martin Luther King, 
And uh, then he winds up going to school in Tennessee. So although he's in Alabama, he's going to college now in Tennessee, uh, in Nashville. And, and John Lewis becomes very involved in protests and lunch counter, this is in 1961, in lunch counter um, sit-ins is what they were called. And Nashville was, in terms of the South, a fairly progressive city. Uh, there are all kinds of reasons we can talk about Nashville. The business community uh, was a little bit more open-minded. And the problem was that there was systematic discrimination. And uh, if you wanted to eat at a restaurant counter, you can only do that if you were white. And uh, a bunch of college students in Nashville, which had a lot of colleges, um, started getting together and organizing. And John Lewis well, became involved with an organization that he helped found, and the name of that organization, and over the course of the Civil Rights Movement, you're going to learn a lot about this organization, uh, which really started in the Nashville area with John Lewis and some of his colleagues. And this is the important word in this organization is nonviolence. And in the Nashville sit-in movement, John Lewis and his compatriots realized that you had to make clear that we're not going to be resisting through violence. We're going to be doing it not through Gandhian principles. And this is what Martin Luther King took out of India and took and understood from, from Gandhi, which is you, you fight violence with nonviolence and you, you expose hypocrisy and you expose, um, you know, really the evil and the, um, the, the irreligious problems that uh, that those who are who are resisting you are are willing to do and, and violence and and ultimately the the thought is that nonviolence will prevail over time once people understand and you bring light to injustice. So these sit-ins are organized for lunch counters in Nashville, and this is the first time that John Lewis gets arrested, 1961. And over the course of his civil rights career, he's going to get arrested in the neighborhood of 45 more times, but starting in Nashville. And this is the Nashville sit-ins led by students with the earliest direct action campaigns targeting racial segregation in the South, and it was successful. And this is the part of the show, and I'm hoping everyone can hear, because we've had some radio difficulties, technical glitches, that people can, of course, listen to us live, which you may be doing now. You can listen to the podcast, or you can go to the website, statutesandstories.com. And I just recently posted this weekend a tribute to John Lewis, and we're going to be talking about the civil rights action and the civil rights movement, and we're going to start with 1961. But before I go into too much detail, you can follow along. If you go to the website, statutesandstories.com, if you go to the blog, You'll be able to see the most recent post about John Lewis and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So to give everyone a high-level summary of what we're going to cover, we're going to, we're going to cover that summer and that time period in 1961 in Nashville when John Lewis was a student. Then we're going to move from the Nashville sit-in movement, and you can follow this online, to the Freedom Riders. And this occurred also in 1961, where John Lewis was very actively involved with what originally started was 13 black and white students, and not just students, but those who volunteered from the North to come down to the South uh, to, to fight against discrimination in transportation and busing. So we're going to talk about the Freedom Riders in 1961, and Lewis was one of the original 13 Freedom Riders. From 1961 and the Freedom Riders, we're then going to move on to the March for Washington and the I Have a Dream speech. And people may not realize this, and I didn't know it myself until I started doing some homework, but John Lewis was very active in organizing the March on Washington in 1963, and he spoke that same day before Martin Luther King. He wasn't the speaker immediately before Martin Luther King, but he spoke that same day at that famous and probably one of the most important, most historic days in the Civil Rights Movement, the I Have a Dream speech in the March on Washington. John Lewis was there. 
John Lewis was also going to move on from there today to cover the ground uh, from, from the beach in Washington. We're going to move to the Mississippi summer or the Mississippi freedom summer of 1960. I can hear you now. My name. Fantastic. Fantastic. That's exactly right. So John Lewis was 20, 23, you're right, 23 years old. And that's the reason why, you know, he died on Friday at the age of 80. He was so young. Think about that. That, that, that moment in time when Martin Luther King, that iconic moment when Martin Luther King gives the famous I Have a Dream speech. And, uh, you know, that day, in fact, on the website section of stories, I have the itinerary of that program. And you can see all the speakers who spoke that day. So there were religious leaders, there were uh, labor uh, leaders, there were preachers, there, was, there were two rabbis, the Archbishop of Washington. So it was a whole, it was a three-day, three-hour event rather. And the march started at the at the Washington Monument. And there were musicians and entertainers, and then they 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 walked the, the mile or so uh, from the Washington Monument to the Lincoln Lincoln Monument, and that's where the speeches that we're talking about now were given. So uh, he was 23 years old at that time, and he was one of the six organizers or the six groups that helped organize that march on Washington. So he's a 23 year old guy. So let, let's uh, just re- re- repeat for everybody what we're going to do this hour. We're going to talk about uh, John Lewis in 19. Yes. Fantastic. And I, I can hear you very clearly. So I'm g- glad you made those upgrades and just takes a little bit of time to figure out how it all works. So uh, I know we are all good. So many, in a way, I like the metaphor that you know today is a, I want to say, historic discussion that we're doing on this show about civil rights. And for the first time, we're going to be jumping from, you know, we, we've only spoken about the founding generation in the, 19, the 1780s and the Constitution in 1789. And, you know, the uh, Lincoln, this is in the 1860s, but now we're skipping to 1965. And why are we skipping so ahead in history when I like to, and I prefer to speak about the older history? And the answer is because John Lewis is such an icon, in my opinion, that, that he deserves to be included in the panoply of, of important figures in American history. And I'm not over doing it when I say uh, that I'm very comfortable discussing him at the same level as presidents and, uh, and, and others who are indispensable to American history. So I'm going to make that case to you today, why some who may be skeptical. John Lewis, who is this guy? He's a congressman, and the answer is no. He, is, he was involved with the civil rights movement at all of the, at least most, of the, the the most important seminal moments in, his, in the historic civil rights movement. And I'm going to explain to you that when he got arrested in the neighborhood of 45 times, it wasn't because he was picking a fight and trying to get arrested. Uh, he was he was doing justice. And there's a famous expression that people are going to learn that's been credited to him over the years. Um, you know, Not just when he became a member of Congress and would say this, but, but he described how when his parents would tell him, John, stay out of trouble. And remember, he grew up in the segregated South. 
and we're going to understand how it was very dangerous where he grew up. But his his motto was, um, his mom would say, stay out of trouble. And his answer was, uh, sometimes trouble is necessary, good trouble. And necessary trouble is sometimes something you have to do. And, and the examples we're going to give were John Lewis's necessary trouble. But it was nonviolent, respectful trouble, and it was civil disobedience. So we're going to talk about that. So what are the moments? We're going to be talking about 1961. And 1961 was Nashville. We're going to then move on to 1963. And when I mentioned 1963, I should also talk about the Freedom Riders is 1961. Then we're going to talk about 1963. That's right. So we're going to talk about the Freedom Riders and what the Freedom Riders were. That's right. So of the 13 original Freedom Riders, and there were in the neighborhood of, I don't have the total number, but it's easy enough to figure out, but th there were several dozen. But the, the first bus load, if you will, of two buses, and the idea was they were leaving from Washington, D.C., and the goal was to take buses all the way to New Orleans. And I mentioned on the website, statutesandstories.com, that there were Supreme Court decisions. This is 1961. But the prior year, which was 1960, the U.S. Supreme Court in the Boynton case, just like the city of Boynton Beach, so it's spelled the same way. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. But in the Boynton decision, the U.S. Supreme Court had held that because bus stations and buses involve interstate interstate travel or interstate commerce, the federal government can use and Congress can do laws prohibiting discrimination under uh, the, the Commerce Clause. And, and you know, people back then debated whether or not Congress had the power to regulate. Uh, could they tell people what to do in their private conduct? And the answer is private conduct is private, but when it's interstate commerce, if it impacts and affects interstate commerce, Congress can through the Civil Rights Amendments, the 14th Amendment, 15th Amendment, can enforce non-discrimination laws. So the Supreme Court in 1960, and it was a case that was argued by Thurgood Marshall, who was a Supreme Court justice later on, um, you know, the Supreme Court ruled that, yes, the interstate commerce and buses and bus terminals have to be desegregated. The problem was that the South was not following that decision in 1960. It's as if they were ignoring what the Supreme Court was saying. And President Kennedy was the president at the time, and he's sort of taking baby steps because he doesn't want to move the country too quickly too soon. Uh, so what the Freedom Riders uh, decided to do, and it was an organized campaign, and these, these folks who volunteered and were selected to do it, uh, they did their wills. They completed their wills before they went on these bus rides because they knew they were going into Alabama and Mississippi. We're going to give some of the names of people who were killed in this time frame. In fact, I want you to ask me where my – not because my grandfather had any relationship with some of the Freedom Riders, but um, to my knowledge. But uh, I want to talk to you about the cemetery where my grandparents are buried in Queens in New York. Uh, because there were Northerners who came down uh, to assist in the civil rights movement. So we'll, I want to save time for that either this week or next week. So long story short, we're talking about 1961, uh, because you brought up how dangerous it was. And um, so of the group of 13, uh, seven of them were, were white and six of them were black. And John Lewis was the youngest of the of the African-American freedom riders who were going to be taking these buses all the way down to New Orleans. Paul, but we're going to ignore that Manny, can you still hear me? Okay. 
sorry, I'm ignoring any more calls because I don't want to uh, interfere with our radio. It is. Okay, so let me just continue talking about the Freedom Riders. So um, what happened? Here it is, 60. There were about 60 additional Freedom Riders plus the original 13. And the problem was leaving Washington, D.C. wasn't a problem. The problem started when they hit South Carolina. And basically at every bus terminal where they would get off, uh, they would have various degrees of of interference and, and being attacked either by the police or by protesters who knew that they were coming. So they would, uh, you know, there would, there would be back then in the South, there would be a waiting, a waiting area. And of course the, the water fountains would be more colored. Colored would be African-Americans. That's where they would get water in a water fountain. And then the white water fountain and the waiting areas. So at a, at a bus terminal, if you're waiting for people to get off a bus, uh, et cetera, and this is you know, before people were traveling a lot by air, there would be by airplane, there would be a, a waiting area for African-Americans or colored and a waiting area for whites. So what the Freedom Riders would do is they would go into the bathroom, and there was a separate bathroom for blacks and separate bathroom for whites. So the white Freedom Riders would go into the black bathrooms, and the black African-American Freedom Riders would go into the white bathrooms. So when they would do this at the different cities, as, as they would take their bus tour down to New Orleans, um, they would either get arrested or they would get attacked. And on Statutes and Stories, the website, I give pictures of all of the 13 original Freedom Riders, and you can see John Lewis, and this is, this is when he's basically just a college student in 1960. And uh, I give examples of uh, you know the, the mugshot that's him getting arrested for doing what for going into a white waiting room in a bus terminal and, and this this occurred in Montgomery Alabama this occurred in various locations in Anniston Alabama where the, that's the location menu you mentioned where they were firebombed as they try to get off a bus the door was being held shut and uh, the police are sort of looking the other way. And um, local officials, I'm just quoting what some of the accounts describe, the, the KKK was waiting for the buses to arrive and beat the passengers, the Freedom Riders, as they try to get off of the burning buses. Um, and I think it was just one bus that was burned that day. But um, there are other examples of Lewis was attacked. He was rendered unconscious, found lying in a pool of blood outside the Greyhound, Greyhound bus terminal in Montgomery, Alabama. So it was very dangerous what they did. And, uh, you know, and it wasn't just this group of 13. It was 60 other Freedom Riders who were selected from the north and from all over the country to take part in this exercise and exposing how they are doing something which is lawful under the 1960 Supreme Court decision, the Boynton case. And uh, Eventually, what winds up happening, and they do this for several months as the rides continue with other riders. So despite the danger, Lewis and the Freedom Riders, they, they wind up blazing the path for the eventual adoption of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So how does that happen? And the answer is that Robert Kennedy was the attorney general. And seeing what's happening with the Freedom Riders, and I should point out that um, many of them were arrested in Mississippi for going into a white-only area in the city segregated bus station, and this is in Jackson, Mississippi, and you can see the, the photo of the mugshot from Jackson, Mississippi. So Lewis spends over 30 days in Mississippi's notorious Parchman Penitentiary for what? For disorderly conduct. Disorderly conduct. He's asked to leave the white-only waiting area. He refuses. He, he winds up doing over 30 days in jail in Mississippi. He gets out of jail, gets on another bus, goes to another station in another city, Basically, the same thing happens. He's either attacked or getting arrested. And you can see those mugshots. So President Kennedy asked his, his brother, who was Attorney General Robert Kennedy, uh, on May 29, 1961, to petition the Interstate Commerce Commission, which was an executive agency in the federal government, to issue regulations banning segregation and in interstate bus travel. 
based on this request on November 1, 1961, the ICC puts in effect new regulations based upon the Supreme Court decisions that require integration of buses and bus stations serving interstate travel, which would include water fountains, bathrooms, and restaurants, and the train and the train stations and bus stations. So that is the result. The ICC, Interstate Commerce Commission, following the Attorney General Robert Kennedy, realizing that what was continuing to happen in the South, the, the attacks and the arrests of the Freedom Riders, then led to that action by Kennedy, the Kennedy administration, and that was in November 1961. But it's only buses and interstate travel. That is only scratching the surface. There's still more work to be done. But again, this is going to plow the, the groundwork for the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and if we have time, we'll talk about, I would argue, the even more important Voting Rights Act of 1965. All right, so that's 1961, which is a very big year. And the result was the ICC enters regulations allowing and requiring the, the desegregation, the ending of segregation in buses, bus stations, and, and um, you know, connect, bus terminals connected to interstate travel. So what else do they wind up doing? The Civil Rights Amendment, the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, so we're going to skip ahead to 1963. In 1963, and Lewis was involved in, as we said, the, the, the March on Washington. So the March on Washington and the organization that Lewis helped found, he was the chairman of the SNCC. The SNCC is the Student Nonviolence Coordinating Committee. And that's a way of organizing students in the South and otherwise to help with civil rights activism. So the SNCC, which was founded by Lewis, and he is the chair during this time period, helps organize the March on Washington in 1963. So there were six big, they call them the big six, the big six leaders and big six organizations that organized the March on Washington, and Lewis was there in the big six and as the chair of the SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, which organized the event. So what, what happened and what was the March on Washington? And long story short, over 250 demonstrators marched from the Washington Monument across the... Yes, what did I say? That's right. 250,000 demonstrators of all colors and all different backgrounds, all different religions, assembled at the Washington Monument where the rally began with celebrities. And they said, absolutely. Go online and look at the pictures. It's the it's the cross section of America, right? Um, dressed back then, people dressed nicely in suits and the hot sun with ties and hats. So the March on Washington, there's 250,000. At the time, it was the biggest that had ever happened. Um, they started the Washington Monument. They walked across the mall to the Lincoln Memorial, and that's where you had the important speeches. And I posted online, the it was called the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom on August 28, 1963. And you can see who all the speakers were. Um, and that's the famous We Shall... Uh, the famous I Have a Dream speech was given by Martin Luther King that day. This is Lewis is 23 years old. He was the youngest speaker that day. Everybody else has passed away. He, he was the last surviving member of that of that generation, if you will. And he gave, as a 23-year-old, uh, perhaps the most assertive. And remember, he's a young kid. He gave the most vocal address. In fact, it's come to light that uh, he was taken to the back of the. Apparently, there were rooms in the Lincoln Monument. 
you know, Lincoln Memorial, you know, because it's a big chamber and there's a big statue of Lincoln sitting down. But apparently there's a, a room in there. So they had access to that room, the speech organizers, and uh, they, they rewrote with him in a type, portable typewriter his speech because they thought it was too assertive, too aggressive. So they, they toned it down a little bit because they didn't want to upset the Kennedy administration because the Kennedy administration is sort of, we can talk about what Kennedy was doing. And we already mentioned how the Kennedy administration was making progress on interstate travel, uh, but there was still a lot more work to be done. And remember that uh, there was the, de- the, the desegregation of the University of Alabama and things were happening in college campuses. So you know, they were trying to do things a little slowly. And we could debate about how slowly they were doing it. Uh, but uh, the point was that the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which would be adopted the following year, was introduced by Kennedy, but it's sort of delayed in Congress because it winds up getting filibustered by Strom Thurmond and a bunch of uh, Southern um, uh, senators, many of whom were Democratic Southern uh, senators, and we can talk about that. Uh, But long story short, the civil rights bill is sort of holed up in Congress. It passes in the House. It's not making much progress, but the the, the March on Washington, yes, Okay, so it, it gets adopted in the House. It gets tied up in the Senate. It's filibustered for over 50 days by Strom Thurmond and others. And, and I don't have – right, so – and I don't want to – right. So so, so those, those Democrats at that time then moved from – right, left the Democratic Party, Manny, and became Republicans. But I don't want to have that conversation right now because that, that, that gets into – right, that gets into – yeah. That gets into a conversation about modern politics, right? I want to talk about, yes, right. So, you know, I, I can give you the names, and we can, if we have time at the end of the hour, we can go through who voted for the Civil Rights Act of '64, who voted against it. Um, but, uh, you know, and <laughs> we, we can definitely do that. There were more Democrats who voted for it than there were Democrats who voted against it. And, uh, you know, it is true that if we didn't have, it was bipartisan, let's do it that way. There were, there were Democrats and Republicans who voted for the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Civil Rights Act of 65. If you want the numbers and I can give it to you, but there were, there were more Democrats who voted Right. And by the way, there were more Democrats in Congress at the time. So there were more Democrats who voted for both bills. Here I have, if you want it. Now, so this is the 88th, I'm sorry, the 89th Congress. In 1965 is the Voting Rights Act. There were, let's see, in the Senate, 68 Democrats, 32 Republicans in the House, 295 Democrats, 140 Republicans. Right. So that's the Civil Rights Act of 65, if you want to do The, there were 295 Democrats who voted for it, 140 Republicans who voted for it in the House. Okay. Um, all right. So, but we can, we can. I can give you the specifics on the, the Voting Rights Act, which I, Okay. Yes, but you, you need you needed both you needed both Democrats and Republicans to, to adopt it. So, what, what I'm I think we're talking about the the March on Washington in 1963. And uh, if you go to statutesandstories.com, you'll be able to see the entire speech I put on there of, 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 of what Lewis gives as this 23-year-old. And uh, among the comments that he makes in this assertive speech is that um, we're going to keep marching. And he says, we're going to march from here to there. And he gives a bunch of cities. We're going to keep marching. And, uh, right. Until 
right, until the revolution of 1776 is complete. You know, and as, as a youngster, he's basically saying this, this ball is moving and we're going to keep it moving and join us uh, because we have to fulfill the revolution of 1776 is obviously the American Revolution. So uh, you can read the speech and I give some excerpts of it. Um, and, and here's the final paragraph. He says, and I won't read all of it, but uh, they're talking about slow down and stop. We will not stop. And remember, he has a little bit of a speech impediment. And we will not stop. All the forces, and he gives a bunch of those who are opposing us, all the forces of Eastland and Barnett and Wallace and Thurmond, so he's mentioning the senators who are trying to stop the, the, uh, the Civil Rights Act, will not stop this revolution. If we do not get meaningful legislation out of Congress, the time will come when we will not confine our marching to Washington. We will march through the South, through the streets of Jackson, through Danville, and he goes through a list of a bunch of places that are going to march, through the streets of, of, of Birmingham. But we will march with the spirit of love, and with the spirit of dignity that we will have shown here today. By the force of our demands, our determination, and our numbers, we shall splinter the segregated South into a thousand pieces and put them together in the image of God and democracy. Here's how he ends. We must say, wake up, America, wake up, for we cannot stop and we will not and cannot be patient. So he is the youngest speaker, and he's got the most vocal message, you know, as we know. King gives that very famous speech, I Have a Dream, but the John Lewis is sort of the young firebrand who they have to tone down about wake up America, wake up. So that's his speech in 1963 on that famous March on Washington. And I have a picture of him giving that, giving that speech, and you can look and see uh, the people who were surrounding him. And you can see some people have um, the, the collar, so those are probably Roman Catholic priests, uh, and it is a, definitely a mixed crowd at that, at that famous speech. I agree with you. These were Northerners who were at this speech. They were not the hardcore Southerners. And I, I give on the website, Saxons and Stories, you know, who the principal organizers were. And uh, after that famous series of speeches, uh, and we know what this date is, this is in August of 1963, the organizers are invited to go to the White House and they meet with Kennedy. And I also have the picture of who gets to meet with Kennedy at the White House. And I, I give the name. So some of these people will recognize. You have the Secretary of Labor, which is Willard Wirtz. You have uh, uh, McKissick, who is from CORE, and these are civil rights organizations. You have the National Catholic Conference of Inter Interracial Justice. That's um, Anman. You have uh, Whitney Young from the National Urban League. You have, of course, Martin Luther King from the Southern Leadership Council, SCLC. You have John Lewis from SNCC and Rabbi Joaquin Prince from the American Jewish Congress, Philip Randolph, who is the reverend and organizer. I'm missing a comma on the website. I'll fix that. Eugene Carson uh, and, of course, Kennedy. And uh, you have representatives from the AFL-CIO, Walter Luther, and the Vice President Johnson and Roy Watkins from the NAACP are who meet following that famous march and the speeches in the White House. But the problem was that the Civil Rights Bill is not moving through Congress. And maybe we'll get into more detail about on another day, behind the scenes of how they get the bill to be adopted. And it's really a very interesting story about how ultimately uh, one of the members of Congress is, is basically in the process of dying, and they, they roll him in. He can't even speak. 
and he raises his hand and to say that, yes, I'm, I'm eyeing, I'm saying, hey, I think he points to his eye, because when they take a vote, you say, ah, you're nay. And he points to his eye to say, I, and you know, that, that's one of the important votes that helps carry it over the finish line. Um, and there are all kinds of amendments that were adopted as they battle over uh, what will they allow in the Civil Rights Act. So I'm also going to point out to you that um, when we talk about the Civil Rights Act of 1964, let's talk a little bit about what's in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So this will be updated on the website, but there are various titles, and some people are familiar with some of the titles, Title Seven. So let's talk about what some of the titles are in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And, and this was a monumental piece of legislation, and we can debate which is more important, the Civil Rights Act of 64 or the Voting Rights Act of 65. But I am pulling up and we're going to go through the Civil Rights Act of 1964 because I think it's important to understand how much is included in the bill, uh, which was a massive piece of legislation. Um, so we're t- talking now about the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Here it is. Title II bars discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, or national origin in any public accommodations affected by interstate commerce. So that would include restaurants, movie theaters, sports arenas, or other public accommodations. Title III of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 authorizes the Attorney General to bring legal proceedings on behalf of others who can't do so on their own because they fear they may be, you know, lose their job or could be detrimental to their public safety or if they lack money to do it. So the Attorney General under Title III can bring legal proceedings Title IV, and there is, as I said, there are multiple titles. I think it's got 11 titles. I'm only going to mention a couple, a handful of them. Title IV uh, seeks, this is Congress in Title IV, desegregation of public schools and instructs the Attorney General to file suits to enforce the act. So that's desegregation of public schools and universities. That's Title IV. Title VI declares that any governmental entity receiving federal funds would lose those funds if it's proven that they're engaging in unlawful discrimination, Title VI. And then Title VII is uh, when it comes to employment discrimination, Title VII, and this is where attorneys now enforce Title VII through private lawsuits, declares it unlawful for employers or unions to discriminate on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. And there's been litigation there over what does that mean, sex. But this is Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So this is a very important legislation that was adopted. Um, and remember, Kennedy is assassinated in 1963. So what gets the bill to move through Congress? And there were two, and it's more than just two, but two very tragic events happened. Right. So on the one hand, you have a bomb which explodes on September 15th of 1963 in the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham in Alabama. And four young African-American girls were killed in that bombing of a church, a Baptist church in Birmingham. Tells you how dangerous Birmingham, Alabama was. So that on September 15th, 1963, while the bill is sort of struggling in Congress to get adopted. And then you have in November of 1963, that famous gunshot. Uh, from Dallas, Texas, and Kennedy is killed. So two days after Kennedy is, is buried, his vice president, okay, so LBJ was a, a big leader in the House. I'm not sure what his position was in the House, but um, you know, he becomes vice president, and then when Kennedy is assassinated, LBJ, who, correct, correct. He is a congressman from Texas, right, where they I, – I, I don't think he was ever – I think he was always in Congress, but I could be wrong. I think he was always in the House. Well, well we, we – um, 
Right. And remember that the president can pick whoever they want to be their vice president so for, for regional reasons. Yeah. He was a member of the House, um, he been a senator from Texas. In this, and I, I don't know what he was before he became a member of the House. But long story short, when, when LBJ, after Kennedy is buried, LBJ realizes this is a moment. The bill is sort of stalled. So what does LBJ do? And I've got a link so people can listen to it and they can, they can read the speech. He gives a very, very famous speech on November 27th. And some historians have said that uh, this is some of the finest moments of LBJ. And I'm going to quote a little bit from this speech on November 27th after Kennedy is killed, and Kennedy is killed on November 22nd. So this is what LBJ says, and this is just a portion of a very long speech, which was televised to the country. And this is again, a portion from his speech, LBJ. No memorial oration. Uh, remember, the country is, I think, all across the country, everybody is grieving when the young president, Kennedy, a beloved president, and I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican, was assassinated in, in cold blood you know, as, as uh, his, his, uh, his car was heading down the street in Dallas. So this is LBJ to a country which is in mourning. No memorial oration or eulogy could more eloquently honor President Kennedy's memory than the earliest possible passage of the Civil Rights Bill for which he sought so long. We have talked long enough in this country about equal rights. We have talked for 100 years or more. It is time now to write the next chapter and to write it in the books of law. So that is part of the speech that LBJ gives to help move the country to get in Kennedy's honor the, the Civil Rights Act that John Lewis was fighting for in 1961, and the, the Freedom Riders are fighting for as they go through the South. And, of course, John Lewis was starting in 1961 with the, the lunch counter boycotts where he's getting attacked you know, as they try to desegregate the, uh, the lunch counters. So, you know, I didn't give full respect to what Lewis accomplished in 61. So I'm going to read you a little bit going back as I get distracted. So in 1961 in, the, in Nashville, I want to read here from David Halberstam, who became a very famous reporter. But at the time in Nashville, he writes an article in the Nashville Tennessean about what was going on in Nashville in 1961 when Lewis and other student protesters would sit at these lunch counters to be attacked by those who opposed having African-Americans in a white restaurant. So this is from Haberstam in the newspaper in the 1960s, 1961. The protesters have been conducted with exceptional dignity. The protests, sorry, have been conducted with exceptional dignity. And gradually one image has come to prevail, that of elegant, courteous, young black people holding to their Gandhian principles, seeking the most elemental of rights, while being assaulted by young white hoodlums who beat them up and on occasion extinguish cigarettes on their bodies. This is what John Lewis was doing starting in 1961 time frame as a student. He is moving the ball, getting arrested and using nonviolence to, uh, to move the ball forward for civil rights. And I've got pictures of him with his head bleeding with, um, and other protesters also, you know, uh, I know it cracked his skull and that's not the worst beating it. That's 1961. We haven't even gotten to 1965 yet. That's right. That's the Edmund Pettus Bridge. So that, that's a good segue. So we, we just talked about the Civil Rights Act of 1964. We talked about how that was a process to get that bill through Congress, you know, which started uh, with Martin Luther King in the late 1950s and gets us to 1964. Kennedy uh, is assassinated and Johnson is able to move the ball across uh, the goal line to get the Civil Rights Act of 1964 adopted. Yes.
Okay, there you go. So you've corrected me. I, I wasn't sure then. So I know LBJ was a leader in Congress. I did. He was a senator. Okay, there you go. So you taught me something, Manny. All right. Okay. So um, we, we talked about we've got a big accomplishment. We've got the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Problem is that just as the Supreme Court decision, the Boynton decision, is not self-executing. Remember how uh, the South was preventing, you know, although the, the courts were saying you have to desegregate the buses and the train stations, the South was refusing to do it because of Jim Crow. Same idea here. The Civil Rights Act is adopted, but the South is refusing to allow African-Americans to get registered uh, to vote for obvious reasons, because the South in many places has large African-American communities. And uh, the Jim Crow South did not wanted to keep the the black man down and prevented from uh, getting political power. So this was a big accomplishment, the Civil Rights Act. But Martin Luther King and Sean Lewis knew that was a goal not just to get civil rights, but they wanted political rights. So let's now move on to, that was 1963, and we talked about what happened in 63 to get the 64 Civil Rights Act accomplished. What about uh, to get the Voting Rights Bill accomplished? And John Lewis, uh, in, in, over the years, in the speeches he's given, and he wrote a book. It's actually a, called a graphic novel. You know, I call it a comic book, but a graphic mo- model, a gra- graphic a novel, uh, which is written for kids to be able to understand and illustrated by the same high-quality illustrators that would do a Superman or a Spider-Man comic book so kids can understand in very vivid imagery you know, what he went through during this period of 1961 through 1965. So, uh, you know, I, and I have a link to that, that comic book. It's called March is the name of a John. He, he wrote, I think, three of them. So people can look at some of those, those graphic novels written by John Lewis. So we talked about the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Uh, this is not yet online because I'm still working on it. But part two on statutes and stories is going to take us forward through the year. So we, we did 1963, but I also want to talk about the, the Mississippi summer. And this is a Mississippi summer, and this is going to lead into the Civil Rights, the Voting Rights Act of 65, where you have to understand the, the, the depth of the resistance itself. Right, so let's now describe. Okay. So I will keep the phone close, and thank you for reminding me. So how do we get from the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to the Voting Rights Act of 1965? A part of this discussion involves the, the Mississippi summer. So, so what is the Mississippi summer? And the quick answer is, um, we talked about the Nashville sit-in movement. We talked about uh, the Freedom Riders, right? And the Freedom Riders were in the, ni- in the 1963, 1964 timeframe. But what about the Mississippi summer? So they realized that, uh, in particular, in Mississippi is one of the worst of the southern deep south states where when you look to see how many African-Americans are registered to vote, it was basically 2 to 3%. In certain counties, it was even less than that who were, were authorized and allowed to vote because of all the poll taxes and because of the literacy tests. There are examples of how you were asked if you were even allowed to get into the building to try to register to count the, the number of soap bubbles or how many jelly beans, count the number of jelly beans in this, in this container. And, and this is obviously intended to prevent people from getting registered. And uh, it would only be, you know, two times a month when people can get in and the dates would change. So there are all kinds of techniques. There was a 
when there was a brochure that was written in, in Louisiana about how to discriminate. The purpose of the brochure was how registrars of, of voting, uh, what techniques could they use to disenfranchise and prevent people from getting registered? So this was endemic in the South. It was commonplace. So Martin Luther King and the organizers of the civil rights movement, including John Lewis, realized that we want to bring attention to the fact that we've got a problem with voter registration and voter disenfranchisement. And we want a law to be adopted. They wanted the Voting Rights Act to be adopted. So how do they go about doing it? So the Mississippi summer, they target the state of Mississippi because they realize Mississippi is one of the worst offenders. And they and John Lewis plays a role with the Southern Nonviolence, uh, with SNCC is the name of the organization, uh, to travel around the north to find college students to use their summer to help educate and do voter registration in the South. And this is going to be very dangerous. Voter registration, if you're a northerner coming into the South, uh, can put you at risk. And we're going to give examples of what wound up happening. So let me skip ahead. And if you go to statutes and stories, we're going to be talking about the Mississippi summer of 1964. And um, I want to say they were in the neighborhood of about 600 college students from all over the country. And if Ed were on tonight, I would mention one of the names of the University of Chicago um, participants in the Mississippi summer who come on down and uh, they try to organize. And there was a problem that uh, some of these organizers and they're, I want to make sure I get the names right, but uh, three of them, uh, two of them were Jewish as a matter of fact. One is Andy, Andrew Goodman, uh, and let me find my notes. But the long story short, if, many of, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Mississippi Burning, so this is in So there was a local African-American, his name is, uh, I don't remember his first name, but um, Cheney, not related to Dick Cheney, but the last name is Cheney, and then two uh, Jew New York Jews uh, among the 600 who had made the decision to help with this voter registration campaign. So it's a Scherzer, I think is one of the names, and Andrew Goodman. And the reason I know that name, Andrew Goodman, is because he is buried in the same cemetery uh, and he was in his uh, 20s. I may have even have been younger than that because he's a college student. Um, but the long story short, these three voter registration students who were trying to advance the ball and bring attention to voter registration in Mississippi uh, wound up uh, getting killed by the KKK. And they disappeared one night. And that's what the movie Mississippi Burning is about, how the FBI investigated and figured out who killed them. The problem was the jury refused to convict. And then it was years later that they were able to get a conviction against the KKK leader who was involved in organizing the, you know, the, the, the killing of those three organizers. And as I said, my grandfather is buried in the same, my, my family is buried in the same cemetery in Queens, New York, uh, where Arthur Goodman, who came from, uh, from New York, is buried. So that Freedom Summer was an effort by, as we said, around 600 organizers from northern colleges who were organized and interviewed and, and convinced to come down to Mississippi to help bring attention and a spotlight on the fact that we can't get African Americans registered because the South is insisting on, on using techniques which are not fair to disenfranchise Southern voters. Uh, so the Mississippi summer uh, highlights the fact that it, it's going to require a law. And the law that eventually was adopted was the Civil Rights Act of 1965. But the last thing we're going to talk about tonight is the famous Edmund Pettus Bridge. And I am hopeful that the name of that bridge will be changed because Edmund Pettus, uh, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, was a, a KKK Grand Duke or Grand Wizard, whatever their crazy titles are. And uh, that bridge 
um, and, and this march occurs. Let me talk a little bit about it. This is in 1964, and uh, this is a bunch of quotes I want to give if we have time, but I know we're running out of time. But um, this is the very important march that happened starting in Selma. And Selma has a lot of history. If we had time, we could talk about more about Selma. Uh, but this is an important march that is led by John Lewis and a handful of others. And they wind up, wind up getting a very large number of people to march with them. And the march starts on March 7th. And the problem was there was a very racist governor in Alabama, and he was proud of the fact that he was racist. It's George Wallace. So when it was announced that there was going to be a march and they were going to deliver a petition uh, from marching from Selma, Alabama to Montgomery, Alabama. Montgomery is the capital of Alabama. So George Wallace, one of the most controversial politicians in U.S. history, was elected in 1962 on a ultra-segregationist platform. And in his 1963 inaugural address, George Wallace, he promises, and this is very famous now, George Wallace promises segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. So that's what they're up against in Alabama uh, when they try to get voter registration in Mississippi and in Alabama. And John Lewis is organizing, as I said, all these pivotal moments in civil rights history. He is on the ground doing what he can to move the ball forward. So he's uh, leading a march, and this is going to be let me find out the date. It's, I think it's March 7th of 1965. Let me just get my notes correct. Yeah, 1965. And Dallas County, Alabama was probably the worst county in all of Alabama, where only 2% of the registered voters were African Americans. And this is after they tried to get them registered in 63 and 62. And as, as late as 1965, you still have only 2% of the members of that community in Dallas County in Alabama registered. So Martin Luther King had met with Lyndon Johnson two days earlier to discuss the voting rights legislation, but Martin Luther King was warned that if he came to Alabama, uh, there were death threats, and, and again, he was meeting with LBJ, so it was decided that um, that the person who would lead the march you know, from Selma going all the way to Montgomery, is about 54 miles, would be John Lewis. So John Lewis is at the head of the caravan. Um, they sort of march down Route 80, and uh, they start. They, they meet initially at a church, and then from the church, they're going to walk all the way down to the state capital of Montgomery. And here, I'm going to just read from some of the newspaper reports. And remember that John Lewis is the president or the chair of the Student Nonviolence Coordinating Committee, which is SNCC, S-N-C-C. And it was, a, it was an overcast, sunny afternoon. So Lewis is at the front of the line, and I'm going to have pictures online that people can see. And Hosea Williams was his top aide to Martin Luther King, who's marching with him. And they lead 600 local residents who march in a very peaceful two-single-file line. So two people, single-file, but two people in the line. And you can see pictures of this line snaking across the bridge. So they go across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and as they get to the bottom of the bridge, there are uh, state troopers and police who are waiting for them, along with the deputized posse, if you will. There are, there are you know, horses, mounted police, there are state troopers, and then you also have the deputized community activists uh, who are not civil rights activists, to put it lightly. These are deputized KKK members who are there because Governor Wallace says that this march is not going to happen. We're not going to get into Montgomery. I'm not going to allow it. And what winds up happening is as they come down the bottom of the bridge, and I don't have time to do it justice, and I'd like to read some of it to you, but I will read one thing, and this is a quote from John Lewis. So this is John Lewis describing what happened. 
as he's leading this group of around 600 peaceful marchers that want to march to the state capitol as they cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And now I'm going to quote from Lewis. I remembered how vivid the sounds were as the troopers rushed towards us, the clunk of the troopers' heavy boots, the whoops of rebel yells from the white onlookers, the clip-clop of horses' hooves hitting the hard asphalt of the highway, the voice of a woman shouting, get him, get the blank, and that's an N-word. And another statement from others who heard, not just get the, get the blank, starting with an N, but get the white blanks. So they were attacked. And there's a picture, and there are multiple different angles of the police beating John Lewis on the ground. And you can see the billy club raised in the air. Uh, and there are others who are using um, barbed wire wrapped around chains, all kinds of ways. To, these are people who are peacefully protesting. But uh, and this is the police who come after them. So that's that historic event that happened on March 7th at that uh, at that bridge, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, um, and and other events. Things weren't televised and things weren't there weren't reporters taking pictures. But thankfully, on March 7th of 1965, there were TV reporters, and the TV reporters recorded in its totality the police attack on John Lewis and the peaceful protesters. And back then they didn't have satellite television and satellite transmission, but that video, those, that footage was put on a plane and sent up to New York and ABC that, that night they were showing a movie. And I want to mention real quick what that movie was, but they interrupted the movie that they were showing. I think it was a Sunday night. They interrupted the movie to show 15 minutes uh, uninterrupted of that footage of what was happening in Selma, Alabama. And that, that footage of what was being done to John Lewis and those peaceful protesters uh, galvanized the country. And the movie that was interrupted uh, was The Trial at Nuremberg. I don't know the exact name of the movie, but you have to understand the, the hypocrisy and the contrast. So that movie was about passivity, about how the people in German, Germany, the average German citizens, sat by idly and allowed the Holocaust to occur. That movie was interrupted to show what was happening in Selma, Alabama. So what's the point? The point is that America, I think the number was 48 million Americans were watching ABC News or watching ABC, that, that, that movie that night, because you only had really three channels, ABC, CBS, and NBC. So those 48 million Americans who watched that footage of what was happening in Alabama realized that uh, enough is enough. John Lewis was at the head of that march, and uh, within, and I don't have the facts in front of me because I want to do it justice, but in a very short time thereafter, Johnson realizes that I'm going to introduce the Civil Rights uh, – remember, the Civil Rights Bill was passed in 64, but the Voting Rights Act. And we can talk about Johnson didn't want to do things too quickly because he realizes you have to get political um, – you have to get political coalitions together. But uh, shortly after that March 7th attack on John Lewis at the Edmund Pettus Bridge, uh, a second march is organized. This time Martin Luther King comes down with about 25,000 people march again with Lewis, Martin Luther King, and others, and they make it to Montgomery, even though Governor Wallace wants to stop them. And uh, there is a court order that is entered. There's a you know what? I would, I would expect that people came from everywhere after seeing what happened. That's a good question. So le legally, yes. Mm. 
1961. <clears throat> yep. So the, the Interstate Commerce Commission, the ICC, enters a regulation preventing requiring desegregation in bus terminals and buses in 1961. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 makes it a law, right? So you are right that in 1965, when people would come uh, to join in that second march, so the original march is March 7th, when John Lewis is beaten, and about 50 people wind up getting attacked and hospitalized, and uh, you know, some were almost killed. Lewis was almost killed that day, where you mentioned how his, his skull was cracked, and, and the scars that he would show for, for years to come, but he was a very humble and, and you know, an honest and loving guy. Uh, but what's the point? The point is that, that you're right, people uh, hopefully by then would have been able to, to take non-segregated buses to come to that second march. And in order for that march to happen, because Governor Wallace wanted to prevent it again, uh, they wound up going into court and getting a federal court order. Uh, and this time, when they came across the bridge, uh, they're protected by federal marshals, right? And they have a federal court order allowing them to march to to, um, to Montgomery. Uh, so that was the follow-up to the March 7th march. That was also a march later in March. So long story short, uh, what's his name? LBJ introduces the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was adopted. We've gone long, Manny, and I, I do appreciate the opportunity just to pay some respect. Yes. No, no, no. You, you figured out how to get it working. Yeah, okay, so we're, we're talking about the Because Lewis was such a giant, again, who was involved in 1961, the Nashville sit-ins, 1963, one of the original 13 Freedom Riders, uh, the march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge and all the organizing he was doing, he spoke at the, and organized the, the 63 spoke you know, before MLK spoke in 1963 at the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial. So he was a he was a monumental icon. So I want to give some quotes uh, from modern politicians trying to put in context how how, how mighty he figured. President Trump, I'm saddened to hear the news of civil rights hero John Lewis passing. Melania and I send our prayers to he and his family. Former President Barack Obama, considering his enormous impact on the history of this country, what always struck those who met John was his gentleness and humility. Born into modest means in the heart of the Jim Crow South, he understood that he was just one of a long line of heroes in the struggle of racial justice. Early on, he embraced the principles of nonviolent resistance and civil disobedience as the means to bring about real change in this country. Understanding that such tactics had the power not only to change laws, but to change hearts and minds as well. Here's a quote from President George W. Bush. Laura and I join our fellow Americans in mourning the loss of Congressman John Lewis. As a young man marching for equality in Selma, Alabama, John answered brutal violence with courage and hope. And throughout his career as a civil rights leader and public servant, he worked to make our country a more perfect union. America can best honor John's memory for continuing his journey towards liberty and justice for all. And let's end with Hank Aaron, the baseball great. Hank Aaron, the Brooklyn Dodger. 
So Hangarin says, John and I connected to the roots. John and I connected to John and I are connected to by the roots. By that I mean we were born and grew up in the highly erased and segregated South in the state of Alabama. He committed his life to the struggle for justice and equality for all people. He was one of the great civil rights icons and led a life of service for the betterment of all mankind. We have lost a giant of a man. That's Hank Aaron. And Manny, on another night, I want to talk more about the Voting Rights Act of 1965 because there was a proposal, and this is where I don't like to talk about current history or current politics, but there was a proposal to reauthorize the Civil Rights Act of 1965. Uh, some would say that that would be the ultimate um, you know, honor to John Lewis to reinstitute the Civil Rights Act of 1965. And maybe another night we'll talk about the Supreme Court decision from 2013, which struck down, I think it was Section 5 of the Civil Rights Act of 1965. Uh, and that gets into a conversation about um, and where we are today. But uh, that, that's Ken. Right. So there is a formula. So what the Civil Rights Act of 1965 did is it, you know, tried to make sure that people are able to register and that there's no discrimination in voting. And I'm not an expert in the Civil Rights Act of 65, but there was a provision that dealt with southern states who had very low percentages of African-Americans who were, who were, um, you know, who were registered to vote, uh, had to get preclearance. Right. So this is the preclearance provisions that certain states would have to get permission if they want to change their voting rights and their voting laws. And they have to get federal approval by a federal judge or the Justice Department in order for them to make changes. In other words, the federal government and Congress didn't trust certain states and certain counties uh, to make changes in voting rights because the problem is that they were probably going to be using the concern to disenfranchise people. So, so the issue today, which is which I, I normally don't like to talk about current politics, uh, the Supreme Court struck down the preclearance provisions, and it's a complex conversation. Uh, so John Lewis, John Lewis was very upset, and he pointed out and he listened to the Supreme Court argument, which I think was in 2013, where John Roberts wrote the opinion, uh, striking down and, so, and holding you no longer needed that provision in the Civil Rights Act of 1965 because this is you know uh, 40 years later. Right. So that, that's the issue. The Supreme Court said you don't need it anymore and, and unraveled that preclearance provision uh, so states can make whatever changes they want. And the issue is states have now done that. They've unraveled, uh, you know, and, and made changes. And we can, again, you can talk about the other hours on other shows that you have. Uh, so John Lewis was, was, was uh, I'm not quoting him here, but he thought that the Supreme Court did not understand the history when they made that decision uh, to strike down the preclearance provisions, which I think was in Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, what's called the preclearance provision. So there are many who are now calling for to pay respect to Lewis because this was his proudest moment. He thought that, yes, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is important to end racial discrimination in employment, to end racial discrimination in universities and in schools. He thought the Civil Rights Act was very important, but he thought even more important was the Voting Rights Act, Voting Rights Act that followed in '65, and that was the one where he was beaten, you know, when they were walking into uh, to Montgomery across the Pettus Bridge, which I think the name should be changed. Uh, and there are lots of he was a so Edmund Pettus, and that's the name of the bridge, was a was a Confederate general who helped organize the Confederate Army. Uh, who fought valiantly, he would say, you know, his supporters. You know, he was a Civil War hero for the South, you know, for the for the rebels, right? So, 
It's a perfect right. His name should be off that bridge. And not only was he a Confederate general, but he was a leader in the KKK. He was a grand, you know, whatever their title is, you know, the, the head crazy, right? Or the grand dragon, whatever. I'm going to try to use polite language here. So that name needs to be. Pettis' name needs to come down from that bridge. It needs to be renamed the John Lewis Memorial Bridge.